1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Do you know, you were made to sing about God. It's thought that these verses that we've just read form part of one of the earliest hymns of the Christian faith. And you find them scattered throughout the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you had a hymn book called Psalms. In the New Testament, you often find just when they're just talking about God and church, Paul would often just spring into song. I bet you didn't have him down as a singer, did you? But do you know what? The Bible actually says that God is a singer. And it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says that God quiets you with his love, and he rejoices over you with singing. What an incredible statement to make about human beings, that there's a God in heaven who delights in them and sings his songs of victory over them. And uh, I love, uh, I think it's in The Magician's Nephew, the first of the Narnia books, where Aslan, who's the king of Narnia, the great lion, And at the very creation of Narnia, he sings and roars the world into existence. What a picture. And the God of the Bible, he's depicted as one who, with his creative power, made everything and makes you and me. And he sings his song of love over us. And that song changes us, and it changes you and me. The human heart was made to sing, because you're made to be like God. Now, I know for some of you here, you're thinking, I'm not a singer. Some of you think, in fact, I've heard some of you sing, and I'd vouch for that. (laughs) But I bet you this, if you were in a packed-out Murrayfield Stadium last weekend, and your team, Scotland, was winning, and then at the end, somebody came on the tannoy and said, I wonder if I could just share some poetry with you. And if somebody read this poem, Oh, flower of Scotland, when will we see your like again? That fought and died for, your wee bit hill and glen. No, no, they'd get blasted, wouldn't they? No, oh, flower of Scotland. <laughs> that's, that's what you sing on those occasions. It's a manly, it's a, it's a deep song to sing. I bet you didn't know, though, that actually national anthems are a relatively new thing. It's maybe 100, 200 years at most. Because actually... National anthems were never designed to replace this greater song that God has called us to sing. How about this one, though? Maybe this one for the Liverpool fans here. If, if I was to read this poem to you. When you walk through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams may be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart. <laughs> And you'll never walk alone. <laughs> you would be singing at the top of your voice to me, You'll never.
never walk alone, wouldn't you? Okay, no Liverpool fans here, right. Uh, I was pitching out there, but okay. So here's the, here's the thing. Your heart was designed to sing, but it's designed to sing songs about God, about Jesus, and who he's made you. Do you know there's songs that sometimes, for me, they they just come on the radio. Sometimes I can be feeling depressed, I can be feeling sad, I can be feeling alone. Sometimes I can be at the boring, worst party that you could imagine. But when this song comes on, guys, when this song comes on... It changes the atmosphere. Okay, that's great, thanks. And it, it, turns, it, it turns the worst moment into a joyful moment. And, you know, songs do that to us. And I want to suggest that this God song that we're going to look at today is designed to thrill your soul. And it's designed to be that anthem that invigorates you and helps you. And some of you here don't know the song. In fact, we wouldn't recognize the tune if we heard it today, but some of you have never sung or heard these kind of words before because you don't know Jesus yet. And today I want to take a few moments to thrill you with the greatest song in the universe. This song makes your heart resonate. Let me just try this. This worked in rehearsal. So... Oh, man. See, a wine glass has a resonant frequency that it's designed to sing at. So when you do that, your soul is designed to sing for God. And my hope is, as we look at these scriptures, that you will begin to feel resonant in your spirit. Paul describes it as a great mystery in this first verse. He says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He's saying, I want to teach you a great song. And I wonder if his mind was taken back. He was, Paul had planted this church in Ephesus. He'd taken two years there. And the gospel preaching had been such a runaway success that people all around were becoming Christians in massive numbers to the point where two of the major industries of the day, witchcraft and idol making, were totally ruined. And it caused a riot one day because all the idol makers clubbed together and they said, well, this is outrageous. We're losing all our money here. We're losing our business, but they portrayed it as something more sincere. They said, said, our culture is at threat. Our whole way of life is at threat. So they began to riot, and they began to shout at the top of their voice in the center of Ephesus. Crowds in hundreds and thousands began to shout, great. They began to talk about their idol, Artemis of the Ephesians. They began to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the Bible says that they went on shouting for two hours solid. And you know what, I bet the Apostle Paul must have just sat there listening to this chant from these people who were really acknowledging that their religion was dying. And he was thinking, you know why it's dying? It's because there's somebody greater that I'm talking about. And his name is Jesus. And we don't have an idol. We don't have a temple. But I tell you, he changes lives. And more and more people, and people all around the world today are putting their trust in Jesus. So I want us to look at this song one line at a time. And uh, there's bits of it that may seem obscure. Do you ever find that when you sing a worship song sometimes or a hymn? You think, I don't even know what this line means or what this verse means. Well, you'll find the same as we read this today, and we'll do our best to unpack it. So 
My understanding of these verses, I think it's a chronology of the life and work of Jesus. And here's line one. It says, he appeared in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. Paul says this is the first line of the song, that Jesus came to earth. Most of us here, in fact, all these babies that were on the stage a moment ago, they all had a beginning. I sometimes, we sometimes put on a wedding video for our kids, our wedding, and we say, kids, this is where it all began. And they're like, oh, turn it off. You know, but <laughs> it, because our lives have a start. All of us started in a mother's womb. We were conceived. What Paul says about Jesus is this. He said, well, he appeared in the flesh. He had a beginning before that beginning. He comes from eternity past. Jesus coexisted with God and co-created with God. The Apostle John wrote, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. He says the same thing a number of times. Jesus was there. He was there. He was there with God at the start. He was there making everything at the start. Yet he appeared that God became flesh. And it's a, it's a mystery, isn't it? How did God appear to human beings? We, we wouldn't have guessed this. We might have guessed Terminator 2 style, that he would have appeared naked behind a bush in need of clothes and a motorbike. I thought that was funny. <laughs> but, but he doesn't. He comes into a mother's womb. He comes and, and he experiences the fragility of life in a womb and all the perils that that contains. He experiences life born into a poor surrounding, living life as a refugee taken to Egypt in his early years under threat for his life. You see, because Jesus became flesh, because he became a human being, he understands humanity. He understands every sorry problem in our world today. He understands you. He understands everything that's gone wrong in your life. He understands your happy thoughts and your anxious thoughts. In a rare moment of Jesus' childhood, we only really have one snapshot when he's nearly a teenager. Teenagers, I know you're in with us today. And in that moment, you see that moment where Jesus breaks away from his mum and dad at a feast and he goes and does his own thing. He goes and spends time in the temple in his father's house. He understands that Phase of life where you're trying to carve out your own identity separate from mum and dad. He knows you. Jesus knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to get tired. He knew what it was to be disappointed. He knew what it was to be alone. He knew what it was to be abandoned. He knew what it was to laugh and to weep. The writer to Hebrews said, talking about Jesus as our great high priest, he said, We don't have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jesus, the only perfect human being who ever lived. Adam and Eve, how long were they around before they sinned? We're not told exactly. Days at most. One of the first things that Jesus did was went into the wilderness and he went without food and water for 40 days and he was tempted severely by the devil 
Yet on day 40, he was stronger than Adam ever was. He never gave in to sin. He appeared in the flesh. Isn't he amazing? The Son of God became a man. Here's the second line of the hymn. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Okay, getting a little bit more complicated. What does this mean? Well, we need to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life to understand what it meant to be vindicated. Vindicated just means shown to be right. So he was shown right by the Spirit. Well, in what sense was that? Well, we're told that the Spirit of God came down on Jesus at his baptism. And you might remember that the voice of heaven, the voice of his Father in heaven, called out saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And there was that moment of affirmation, God saying, that's my Son, he's right, I love him. That sense of vindication in one sense. There's a sense in which Jesus was vindicated by a perfect life, lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is described as being full of the Spirit, living in the power of the Spirit, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts 10, verse 38, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. A man called Nicodemus, a Pharisee, one, one day came to Jesus at night and he said, he said, Jesus, we know that you're from God because nobody could do the stuff that you do unless God was with him. This is how Jesus was vindicated because he led such an amazing life that everybody said, clearly God's with him. But do you know how Jesus was most significantly vindicated by the Holy Spirit, which kind of blows even those amazing things out of the water? It's this, that The Spirit of God brought a lifeless corpse of Jesus back from death on the third day after he was crucified and died. The Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. For human beings, death is the final word. Death is the thing. Mortality is the one thing we all have in common. In fact, the Bible says, if you read the Bible, it says that Death is, our mortality is as a result of sin. From Adam and Eve, they brought death into the world through sinfulness. So every time somebody dies, it's an expression of this fact that sin is alive and well in the human race. And we can't therefore beat death. So when the Spirit of God raises Jesus from the dead, it's an undoing of death. It's a saying that Jesus' death was different. See, Jesus' crucifixion didn't vindicate him. In fact, all his enemies laughed and scoffed at him and they said, look, he's a bad man. He's dying a criminal's death on a cross. That's how you dealt with criminals in those days. If you were unlucky enough to be walking your kids past crosses in those days, which were common things, you'd say, kids, you'd better do what I say, otherwise you'll end up like that. (laughs) The cross didn't vindicate Jesus. Nobody said, oh, look at him. He's taking the sin of the whole world. Isn't he amazing? Look at his great love for us. Nobody was saying that. Everybody was saying, failure, it's ended badly, disaster. But on the third day when the Spirit of God opened up that tomb and raised Jesus from the dead and he walked bodily out and he showed himself to hundreds and thousands of people. When he said to Thomas, look, come and touch me, I'm alive. He was vindicated. Everybody's saying, at that point, it was game, set and match, Jesus. When Jesus did miracles, the Pharisees said, you know what, I think he's doing it by some other power. When Jesus came back from the dead, they had no answer at all. 
because Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Romans 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Regarding his son, Jesus, who was to, his earthly life was a descendant of David in the flesh, and who, went, and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the, the dead, Jesus our Lord. The baptism of Jesus said, He's loved by God. He's the son of God. The resurrection of Jesus says this. He's the son of God in power. That he's unrivaled, unequaled. Here's the third thing. Third line of the hymn. Are you singing along so far? You got it? You getting the tune? Jesus came in the flesh. He was crucified. He was raised to life, vindicated by the spirit. Here's the third thing. He was seen by angels. Wow, this is getting really complicated now, isn't it? What does this mean? Okay, it sounds more mysterious. We all, we, we all love angel sightings, don't we? we? We love those stories where somebody saw an angel. And even in the Bible, you can go angel spotting through the New Testament. You think, ah. Well, so, again, helpful to think, what, what role did angels play in the life of Jesus? And the answer is you find very little. You find when he was in the wilderness, it says angels appeared to strengthen him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you find that an angel appeared to strengthen him. Other than that, there's not a lot of angels in the ministry of Jesus. I think we're to understand this verse as being about something quite different. And that is this, if we understand angels as belonging to the unseen realm. See, the reason why it's, it's unusual for us to see an angel is because angels don't belong to the seen realm, they belong in the unseen realm. But the Bible says there's an unseen realm where, where angels hang out in hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands. So I think if we're to understand this verse right, it's saying this, that Jesus was seen by angels when he was welcomed back into his glory following his life, death, and resurrection here on earth. So it says 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he climbed a hill with his friends, with his disciples, and He gave them the great commission, and then it says he was taken up from them, and a cloud hid him him from their sight. The cloud hid him from their sight, but in a reality that they were unable to see and that we are unable to see, Jesus was welcomed on those same clouds, and he came back into heaven. Can you imagine the rapturous applause that the Son of God achieved in that moment when he re-entered the unseen domain, the unseen realm of heaven. Can you imagine thousands upon thousands of angels cheering and whooping and and shouting? Revelation chapter 5 tells us something about this. Verse 11, I'm cutting it slightly short. It says, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Jesus is there surrounded by tens of thousands of angels and they just can't stop saying, he's amazing. He's worthy. Power and praise belong to him because he has triumphed. He's redeemed sinful humanity. He's the Lamb of God. These angels Never stop singing this song to God. The early church, particularly 
got access to this reality when they went through times of hardship. The, apostle, the, the, uh, the martyr Stephen, the first martyr, as he was about to die, he looked up into heaven and he said, look, he said, I see the heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus has ascended doesn't mean that he's just disappeared in a cloud somewhere. It means he's now the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's in the highest place in the whole universe. He sat at the Father's right hand, the place of all authority. And if you want one more scripture to help you see where Jesus is now at, then Daniel also prophesied about it. In Daniel chapter 7, he said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Jesus the human being, coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days, God, and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus re-entering heaven, and he comes before the Father, and the Father says, Son, here's your reward. Everybody, everywhere is going to worship you from every nation of the world. People of every language. God's kingdom has been inaugurated through the enthronement of Jesus. He now sits on heaven's throne. And because he's now sat on that throne, the Bible says he now pours out the Holy Spirit generously to all who will receive. He'll pour out the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Even hearing that story about healing earlier, wasn't that great? Why do people get healed today? It's because Jesus has ascended and he has all authority and power and he gives gifts to his church and healing is one of those gifts. He gives gifts to his people. He gives the Holy Spirit to his people. Jesus is ascended to the highest place. Line four. He was preached on among the nations. In Acts chapter 1, it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. What does that one verse tell us? That Jesus hasn't finished his job. It's all that Jesus began to do until he was taken up into heaven, until he ascended on high. He, that was just the beginning. That job now continues through the ascended Jesus instructing and empowering his church. And when it says he was preached on among the nations, it tells us that this song of the ages doesn't stop with Jesus as exalted. He continues his ongoing mission to the world. And what you found was those early apostles who grasped this truth, they went everywhere and they started sharing the gospel. They went from town to town, village to village. And people became believers. They went to synagogue, synagogue, synagogue. And and people who were formerly Jews said, you know what, Jesus is the Messiah. It worked. Because Jesus is the Messiah and he's exalted and he's sending his church. He then had to get Peter's attention to say, it's not just the Jewish people, it's everybody. And Peter was a bit slow on the uptake, but they finally got it and they started sharing the gospel with the whole world. The Apostle Paul particularly started going to everybody. And here was his experience. Wherever he went, there was opposition, but there was people who came to know and love Jesus because they said, wow, there's a God who can forgive my sin. There's a God who I can know. 
Now, we, we live in an age in Europe where we tend to think, well, Christianity is a bit on the wane here. It's had its day, and, and, and we, we get a little bit depressed by that if you're a Christian. I want you to understand, from a New Testament perspective, there was a time when nobody in Europe knew the name Jesus. There was a time when you could go to Paris and you could say, Suisse, Jésus? And they'd say, No, monsieur, je ne sais pas Jésus. There, there, there was a time when you could go to Germany and you could say, Kennst du Jesus? And they'd go, Nein! Nein, Jesus! He wasn't known. There was a time. I know we've got some Nigerians here, right? Yeah, here for Nigeria. Can you imagine a time when you could go to Lagos, Nigeria, and there wouldn't be anybody there who would know the name Jesus? Can you imagine that? No, not everybody there seems to be a Christian these days, right? See, he was preached among the nations. They took that commission seriously because they knew God was with them. And they went to the ends of the earth. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a place on earth these days that didn't know the name Jesus. Because he was preached on among the nations. That's part of the song. It's a song that goes on through all time, telling people about him and his love and his lordship over their life and his call on them. Because if God became a man and was crucified, if he's truly raised from the dead and glorified, if he's on the throne of heaven, then what more important song there could there to be sing to the peoples of the earth? Here's the fifth thing. Not only was he preached about, he was believed on. He was believed on in the world. Wow. Do you know, in the 1960s, all foreign missionaries were evicted from China because it was regarded as a not fitting with communist ideology. They wanted to do away, suppress religion, get rid of it. They, they had a plan to wipe it out. They said, no more Christianity here. And those few, very few Chinese believers started sharing their faith. Today it's estimated that there's 100 million Christians in China. It's about a tenth of their population. They, they predict it's going to be the largest Christian nation on earth sometime soon. Because here's the thing about this. Jesus can be believed on. Here's the true attesting of something. It's not just that Jesus walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago. It's at this, that people who put their trust in him now find him to be utterly reliable. They find that if they give their life to him, he holds them and he looks after them and he cares for them. That even if they give up their life, it's worthwhile because, because he will reward them. There was once a, uh, a missionary to the New Hebrides uh, in the southwest Pacific. And he was, he was trying to share the gospel with a cannibalistic tribe. And he was trying to find the word, in jo- he was trying to translate John's gospel, and he was trying to find the word believe in their language. You know, whoever, um, God so loved the world, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. And he was saying to his, his friend there, one of the locals, he said, well, what's the word you use here for believe or trust? And, and the guy was like, well, we, we don't have that word here. We're cannibals. We don't trust. We don't believe. And uh, he said, oh, right. And he was struggling. And he was saying, what am I going to translate this word as? And so 
with his friend watching him, he, he sat down on a chair and he threw his legs up in the air like this, put all his weight on the chair. And, uh, and he, he said to his friend, he said, what am I doing? And the guy said, well, you're putting all your weight on something. And he used that word in his translation of John's gospel to say, whoever puts all his weight on Jesus will receive eternal life. Here's the thing about Jesus. He's stronger than all of your sin. There's nobody here who can outweigh Jesus with their badness, with their lifestyle. He can take it all. He's big enough for you. He's strong enough for you. He can be believed on. He can be trusted. Today you can lean on him. He will bear your weight. Here's the last one. He was taken up in glory. Now, at face value, this could be another reference to the ascension of Jesus. If, as I'm saying, this is a chronology, I want us to read this slightly differently. Because what haven't we covered so far? So if Jesus was God, pre-existent with God, he came flesh, he became flesh, he lived his life, He was crucified. He was vindicated by the Spirit when he rose again from the dead. If he then ascended into glory and is now at the right hand of God and is now commissioning his church to go and preach the gospel to all nations and all the nations are now believing in him, just as Daniel prophesied, they're a gift to Jesus the Son from the Father. If they're all believing in him, what's the one thing that we haven't covered in the life of Jesus? That he's coming again. He's coming again. He appeared in glory, and he's coming again in glory. And one day, Jesus will tear the skies open, and the angel said, uh, just as he ascended, in Acts 1.11, it says, This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven in a cloud, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus left the seen realm into the unseen. There's a day coming when the unseen will once again become the seen, and every eye will see him. Everybody, even those who did not believe in him, will one day see him. That makes this message not just nice, but ultimately important. Because not, it's not simply about history. It's about the whole of our future, the whole of yours and mine. That one day Jesus will come again, it says, to judge the living and the dead. And one day he will sing this song over us. And I want to ask you today if you're singing the song. Are you singing the Jesus song? You know, his church is to be a place that sings this song. In the opening verses we read today, Paul says... I want you to know how to conduct yourself in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Here's what church is meant to be. A people who tirelessly sets forth the truth of this song to generation after generation after generation. He deliberately reverses the order. He says, well, the truth is the foundation of this message. Why? Because we're responsible for making sure we convey this song I know we've had baby dedications today. Parents, teach this song to your children. I know you love singing to your kids. 
usually to try and get them to sleep, right? But here's a song that you must teach them. That Jesus loves them. He died for them. He rose again for them. And he's coming again for them. And they need to believe in him. Here's a song that we need to continue presenting to our secular city of Edinburgh. That Jesus is alive. That he's coming again. And people must respond to him. But Paul very deliberately calls the church God's household. It's a reference to the church being the family of God. And here's the amazing thing about this message. It's not just some creed to be believed, but it's something that we believe and experience and sing together. And there's people here today who you perhaps have never sung the song. Or even as we were worshipping earlier, you were feeling a little bit on the outside. And today I want to invite you to join the song. This is God's household. This is his family. And I bet for at least one person here today, you're just feeling alone and on the outside. And in Jesus' name, I want to say to you today, welcome home. Welcome home. You belong here. This is what you were made for. This is who God's made you to be, part of the family of God, living in Edinburgh, living in this place in this time. And today you can sing this song. How do you become part of this family? By being born again, just like a little baby. You say, God, come and be born in me. Come and forgive my sin. Come and start again in me, and God will come and live in you. So we're going to do this. We're going to sing. I don't know if the band could come and join me, just as I wrap up here. And we're going to sing a, a song, which is really singing many of the truths that we've talked about today. That we believe in God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the chorus goes something like this. We believe in you. We believe in you. And if this is your prayer today saying, Jesus, I want to be part of the song. I want to be part of the family. I want to invite you to sing this song with us. Some of you here. Some of you here have sung this song a thousand times. I want to encourage you to sing it louder and more confidently because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. There's one other group here I'd like to talk to. And there's this, some of you have stopped singing the song. You were singing it loud and clear. And then things have happened and you've just started turning the volume down or stopped singing. Just a little bit quieter. Um, And the enemy comes and he whispers in your ear. Even in times of worship like this, he whispers, you know what? You should just stop singing these things. You don't believe them anymore. He even uses words like, it's inauthentic. If you were authentic, you wouldn't sing it. I want to say the exact opposite is true. The way you fight the fight of faith and you keep believing, even when you're doubting, 
is you keep singing. You keep saying the truth. You keep saying, Jesus, I'm struggling, but I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep singing. Even when my mind disconnects from it, I'm going to keep on expressing that I trust in you.